Our job is to try and talk about some of the topics that interested us in the world of health law, health policy uh, this week. Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the Right to Forget podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on June 14th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, who is fresh from listening to the White House tapes. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. So Frank and I have just spent some time in Atlanta at the annual Health Law Professors Conference. We should take a moment to thank our friends at ASLME and Georgia State College of Law for their hospitality, a great conference. Absolutely. Yes, I really uh, thought it was run extremely tightly, great events, great schedule, and um, just many, many thanks to Georgia State. And uh, the the bad news was that uh, I took a cold with me, and a flight to Atlanta and back again uh, made things quite unpleasant. So, uh, dear listener, if I sound even more incoherent than usual, uh, blame the NyQuil. A quick reminder, it only takes a moment for you to go to iTunes and rate the show, uh, so please help us out here. Uh, your reviews and comments really help uh, the show. So, uh, this week on Twill, we greet no one. Because <laughs> this week on Twill, we're going to celebrate, if celebrate is the correct word, the 100th episode of The Week in Health Law. Uh, yeah, woohoo. <laughs> At the beginning, before the music, you heard uh, some embarrassing seconds from the very first episode. The hesitancy, the pauses. <laughs> and if you listen carefully to the whole of the show, you will find out I didn't even know the name of our show. <laughs> But there was actually some substance that day uh, in between the interminable pauses and other snafus. And Frank, we talked about some interesting things that day. We talked about the Anthem cyber breach that led us into talking about the HIPAA security rule, encryption, and the balance between security and interoperability. We talked about biometrics and how they could improve security but whether they would negatively impact privacy. We talked about consumer-directed healthcare and government ranking systems for nursing homes, uh, star ratings and so on, contrasting that to some of the full-text searches that uh, you raised that ProPublica uh, enabled. We also looked at the impact of punishing low-ranking institutions on quality ba- on a quality basis and talked about the access issues that that might Uh, set in motion. Uh, We talked about the FDA and mobile app regulation and uh, congressional pressure to further get uh, FDA to take more of a hands-off approach. Uh, And we hadn't even got a draft of the 21st Century Cures Act at that point. And we talked about states filling in gaps. Uh, We discussed the uh, supplements, seizures, in New York and how the states there, along with the FTC and POM Wonderful, were filling in some regulatory gaps. And I thought that um, although we've gone into many other areas since then, those topics uh, have come back many times on the pod and I think have, while not exclusively, are also something of a commentary on the research interests that we have. Yeah, I think that's right, Nick. I mean, there's certainly a lot of the greatest hits of health technology law uh, right there in terms of moving from data policy to the broader questions of 
information policy with respect to like these star ratings and quality measurements. Um, and then moving on to the future of the regulatory state and how it's either going to intervene or take on a very hands-off role with each of those. And I think what's sort of interesting, you know, in thinking about that that pod, and that must have been in 2015, right, that we, uh, we started, yep. is just how dramatically the landscape has shifted thanks to politics that I don't think anybody could really have foreseen. One of the side effects of just sort of, I guess, a broad populist uh, revolt now seems to be that a lot of these issues are probably not going to be robustly addressed on the federal level. I know that we're, we also have been talking about state law initiatives for some time, and I think that's where some of this is migrating out to. Some of it is also going to be maybe pursued on the international level. And I think it reminds me of, you know, the prescience of your work on the regulatory arbitrage in terms of how that had been a theme already, you know, in the Obama administration. And now I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are about the future of this sort of regulatory arbitrage when maybe there's less to arbitrage against, or will there be even more pressure towards regulatory arbitrage because there seems to be more people at the federal level who are, if not explicitly, at least certainly implicitly ideologically uh, in favor of a real hands-off with respect to the government and healthcare. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, when you do think that we, we started, what, February 15. So really, we were in, we started the pod just as we were getting the first real substance of the ACA coming into play. We spent a lot of that first year talking to folks about sort of the the early expansion and so on. And of course, we lived through the major Supreme Court cases, which were both fascinating legally, but I think also so important politically, because even though the Obama administration pretty much won them, the Medicaid expansion aside, they helped the opposition to create an anti-ACA narrative and and continue it through continual um, damaging publicity-seeking court cases. And then the last six months or so, we have uh, sort of drifted into this alternate uh, universe uh, in which we start to realize that the reality that we thought uh, was in place as far as the future of healthcare, even though it had issues, uh, was going to be turned over. So it's going to be a very different kind of sort of arbitrage, I think, to try and answer your question. Let's let's not be naive, right? Healthcare and so health law has always been under stress or in turmoil, and we're just going into the next sort of wave or dip or whatever. But we're certainly going to see a true laboratory of the states over the next uh, three, four, hopefully that's all the number of years. A laboratory of states, however, insofar as it's permitted by ERISA, which I think has to be something that gets raised to the highest level with regard to the debate over healthcare reform or repeal. And I'm guessing we're going to see probably as many as a third of the states pretty much replicate ACA regulation of private insurance. And insofar as their economies allow, um, uh, drop footnote here to Illinois, try and find ways to maintain Medicaid coverage. Unfortunately, this experiment is going to see too many of those given placebos uh, suffer and likely die in the other two-third of states. But clearly, there will be this sharp difference in regulation. And when you get that, it's hard not to imagine 
imagine that we're going to have both disruption, regulatory disruption, uh, uh, which I, in my work, I've, I've sort of viewed as a kind of um, a sort of an, a more negative form of indeterminacy, as well as, as you note, actual arbitrage. Yes, I think that's a really good comprehensive diagnosis of the state of the landscape right now. I want to go back to your first point about the cases, about the big Supreme Court cases and their reshaping of the ACA and the political cultural effects they had and how those went hand in hand. And I wanted to connect those two by saying that one of the aspects with NFIB versus Sibelius in terms of really giving the states a robust right to opt out of Medicaid 2.0, of the ACA vision of Medicaid, is that it even further fragmented an already fragmentary health landscape. And one of the things that I think is really critical in considering why there's been so much less pushback, say, with respect to the Republican budgetary plans for really cutting the legs out from under Medicaid and you know, cut, slashing funding uh, to the exchanges or sort of playing games with whether the cost-sharing reduction payments would be paid or not. All of that sort of feeds into the probabilistic nature of the ACA as an entitlement. And this is really where I think there's going to be a sea change in coming years in terms of the future of healthcare politics and policy in the U.S. is what we're seeing is, you know, you may have the smartest policy analysts, uh, experts on targeting, framing something like the ACA as the perfectly micro-targeted entitlement approach that's just going to help the people that really need the help. And it's not going to give, say, the person that makes 350% of poverty, the poverty line, a penny more of help than they actually ought to get under some sort of technocratic uh, conception of affordability. And what the while that might be an optimal way of conserving or perhaps uh, hoarding government resources, um, it is not a good way of developing an entitlement that leads, that has uh, mass support because, you know, everyone can understand, oh, they're going to take away your Medicare. Very few people can, can really want to grapple with an appeal that goes something like, if you are making below 200% of the poverty line and you have a certain family size, then the current budgetary plans are going to potentially reduce your premium assistance tax credit and undermine the cost-sharing reduction payments or get rid of them, but you may not have even been aware of them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think this is one of the really interesting aspects of the future of the health policy landscape. And I think it's one reason why you see, again, to go back to the state level, so much interest in places like Nevada for a Medicaid buy-in as a version of the public option or California for an overhaul, total overhaul towards single payer. And, you know, your point about ERISA, I think, is really well taken because a lot of folks are saying one of the biggest stumbling blocks to something like the California plan is exactly going to be ERISA. How are they going to manage to, you know, really restructure the healthcare system fundamentally without having clear statutory change at that level? And, and it's very hard to imagine that being revisited anytime soon. Yeah, and I think the um, the the way that healthcare reform under the ACA was structured, and of course it, it goes way, way before that to, to Medicaid and then CHIP and, and, and so on, that it really is almost structured in, it was structured in a way almost that it defied a majority being formed around the importance of healthcare because it was so over segmented. What the law says is that, you know, someone who is 139 FPL has a different set of interests compared to one who is at 137 FPL. Yes. <laughs> or 99 FPL, or is differently interested compared to someone who is exchange qualified, but only gets a 10% subsidy. And what we've ended up with, and I think we saw that to an extent in the election in 
November 16, was that rather than these different groups coming together and viewing themselves as being in the same situation, they were actually to an extent pitted against each other. And that's why the sort of the, the welfare narrative was helped back into the debate. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think particularly looking at the split between those who had to pay high deductibles, high levels of premiums, etc., looking at folks on Medicaid um, and saying, look, you know, why am I being punished for working? This seems really unfair. And I think that's also part of just the phenomenology of the entitlement, which is negative on two levels. One being the more that you make, the more you're getting penalized. So this can be framed easily as a punishment of hard work. Secondly, no one wants to think of themselves as being somewhat close to the poverty line. You know, I mean, I don't think, and so to frame the entire entitlement around, well, you're two times or you're three times or you're what have you. I don't think anyone sort of puffs up their chest and says, oh, I'm making three times the poverty level. That's great. I think it's much more like, wow, I'm skating very close to being part of this disfavored social category, the the takers as opposed to the makers. And, you know, I think there's really great health law scholarship being done now on exactly that issue. But part of it also has to go beyond the scholarship to a level of, you know, how does policy get influenced to reflect this type of political and psychological reality? Well, talking of scholarship, I guess the two of us are identified with a relatively small group that got interested in healthcare technologies, healthcare data. We certainly weren't alone. Our friends, uh, you know, Sharona Hoffman, Leslie Francis, Stacey uh, Tavino uh, were engaged early in some of these issues. But I, I I wondered looking at, at back at some of your work when you sort of jumped into that first piece of yours I ever read was on concierge medicine and I still cite it um, uh, thank you <laughs> I wondered when that sort of technology piece really started dominating your work because you don't have a technology background, do you? No, no. I mean, I think that the technology aspect of it is, it's a great question. And I have a few paths into it. One being that I, you know, the earlier stuff that I was doing on healthcare finance, I still maintain an interest in that. But I actually, after the Affordable Care Act was passed, I said to myself, this healthcare finance landscape is going to be both extremely complex and constantly changing. And I don't want to be writing things that are going to be relevant for one year or two years. And so I just sort of backed out of writing about healthcare finance at that point, kind of happy I did so. Um, and, and the other thing that was happening was I was simultaneously with writing the healthcare finance stuff, I was writing a lot of stuff on search engines, uh, Google, the law of Google, etc., which, you know, in about 2005 to 2006, a lot of people took to be a pretty niche and uh, overly narrow topic. Uh, I had many people throw papers in my face and say, this is like the law of the horse. Google won't even matter in a few years. You know, why mm -hmm. are you concerned about the digital? Um, and so one thing I thought was, let's bring these together. Let's bring together the digital side and the healthcare side. Another sort of more cynical reason for doing this, or, or at least more opportunistic, is to say that, you know, a great way of uh, distinguishing oneself as a legal scholar is to find something that is so boring and complex that almost no one else will tackle it and then dive in. Uh, so, <laughs> and that frankly is what a lot of digital health privacy and data law is. Well, that's, <laughs> so. that's absolutely um, how I used HIPAA. There we go, right? <laughs> I mean, no one, no one you know, as I, as I said, with uh, Sharona, Leslie, uh, Stacy, a, a few other, uh, Barbara Evans, maybe, uh, aside, I don't think anyone had ever read the darn thing. And uh, uh, so, yes, one, one, was, uh, one, one was able to um, distinguish oneself. Of course, it, in, in some ways, it was negative in that um, I was always the final presenter on the final panel uh, on the Saturday of a three-day conference. <laughs> 
So the audience was never very large. No, but the thing is, I mean, what's so great about it is that, you know, I think what we intuited in a way, and I think what the folks in the sort of health data law, health privacy, health information law community were intuiting was that the digitalization of business that was really happening at a very fast pace to journalism, to even to the military, to uh, banking, to all these different areas, that it was coming to healthcare. It was accelerated, mm -hmm. certainly, by the passage of high tech, you know, and, and I'm sure you were one of the very few people that was really aware that that was even even on the congressional agenda, that there was, you know, legislation, you know, ready to hand that would do that. But it's it's great, you know, to have that background and to have watched it go on for a while, because I think that's the other thing that's really, I find rewarding after about 15 years in writing in health law and policy is that you can see things that are happening now and immediately come back to, oh, we tried that in 96. We tried that in 2008. We tried that in 2012. Lots of folks have really short memories. And, you know, so, so I think that's great. And, yeah, and I, and I think particularly, you know, just as the presentation I was making at the Health Law Conference, when I was thinking about a lot of the new hype about certain ways of maintaining health data, I immediately thought to your 2009 article on personal health records and thought, oh, that's immediately relevant, you know, and we've got to look to that issue and look at what your your considered view of it then is quite relevant now. Uh, so that's a, that's a nice part of, of having been into it a little bit early. Yeah, I think also, I, I think one of the things that we've managed to do along with with some of those other folks I, I mentioned is tie the data stuff and the development of the business of data and health data back into the broader picture of healthcare and health law. That this is not a little piece that's off on the side. The way that healthcare data is dominating tells us a lot about healthcare is changing. My main message of that uh, that piece on um, personal health records that, that you mentioned so kindly was less about personal health records and woohoo new technology let's go dr google dr microsoft which all the headlines were going at the moment at that time but was to tie that idea into the negative narrative of consumer directed healthcare that this was yet another attempt to essentially shift risks and costs to consumers to to patients ah that's i, I totally see that deeper trend now and you know immediately i think of all of those blog posts that I was writing back in 2006, 2007 or so about consumer-directed healthcare. And then, then of course, Tim Jost's big work, big uh, book on it, uh, which is quite right. relevant to the current push there. And you're right. I mean, I think that's a hallmark of a lot of the best work in health data law is, you know, folks like Nathan Cortez, Barbara Evans, uh, Fazal Khan, other folks. And I'm really sorry, I can't name check everyone, but you know, luckily we're a small enough community that I can get a lot of the really great folks in it. They are, they are looking at these seismic shifts in the healthcare landscape. And it's strange, you know, to think about one of the big questions in the future of healthcare is, are big firms from outside going to just sort of sweep aside a lot of the both institutional and regulatory infrastructure? I wrote a piece in 2002 with some co-authors about antitrust and the music, online music. And thinking all mm -hmm. the way back then, you know, to my legal mind, the solution to the problem of getting your music online and getting the artist 
just paid was going to involve something like the ASCAP settlements uh, put forward by the mm -hmm. DOJ. And, you know, we had all these great precedents in competition law. And here's a 120-page blueprint as to how that can be done. And of course, you know, within two or three years, the article is rendered almost immediately obsolete by iTunes, Spotify, etc. And, you know, I, I, I stopped teaching copyright law, in fact, because toward the end of every copyright law class, I would say, here's your big fat statute book. Probably within five or 10 years, we'll replace this with the terms of service of um, iTunes and YouTube and a few other digital behemoths. <laughs> And, and, and I, I think this is one of the questions that, you know, really is going to come up to health law is, and what's so strange in health law, though, is that the firm that is sort of positioned as the monopolistic behemoth that could displace everyone and just sort of take it all over seems to have been pretty sluggish or not doing that great a job in doing so. And so that, I think, is the big, one of the bigger questions on the agenda now is can other firms come in and, and try something like that? I'm, I'm, I've made a slightly different analogy to uh, the healthcare system, and that is cable TV. TV, that to an extent, cable TV is this sort of bundle that everyone is trying to break up and make and have more competition in. And I think there, there are parts of the healthcare system that are sort of over bundled like that. I got it. Yes. Yeah. No, I could see that in terms of like the, and that was actually an interest of, of mine, like a few years ago in terms of the specialty hospitals and ambulatory surgical centers and, and things like that. And, and one of the questions there was, it seemed like there, the unbundling was driven entirely by the commercial interest of the highest paid providers, uh, the hope is that you could get to some sort of unbundling that has a clearer rationale for improving care. Yeah. So I, I, I do have to ask you, I mean, when, when's the first, the first day or where well, you don't sleep? So it was probably the first night you, you read the whole time <laughs> as everyone who listens to this knows that you are the, the, the broadest red and widest red um, academic I've ever met. When was the first time you stumbled across the word algorithm? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Well, thank you so much, Nick. You're, you're too kind. But I, I would say that one of the funniest things with uh, algorithms, I'm sure I was looking at some documents there when I did this 2006 article on Google called Rankings, Reductionism, and Responsibility. So I mm -hmm. came across it a few times. But what's really funny is that the I have to give a huge amount of credit to my this book, The Black Box Society, The Secret Algorithms That Control Money and Information, is probably the the thing I've done that has been you know, a, a bigger impact, you know, or a big some sort of impact. And the only reason that I had algorithms in the subtitle was because the uh, the editor at Harvard was like, I think that's going to be a big topic. And so, <laughs> so I have to say, like, whenever people make fun of the publishing industry, I'm like, well, I think that, you know, they could maybe be more efficient. But on the other hand, there are some people there that really know what they're doing. So <laughs> every now and again, they find a knot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so this, this question of algorithmic accountability is a really fascinating one. And watching it intersect with health law, seeing, you know, like Glenn Cohen's article in Health Affairs a few years ago on, on algorithms algorithms and, uh, you know, sorting mechanisms in health uh, care, anticipating some of the ethical and legal issues raised by them. It's it's great seeing the algorithmic accountability agenda coming to health law. And that's been a, a theme of, of your work as well, right? In terms of like trying to make sure that these more, you've always had a really great eye on the future and understanding what the future is bringing and how it's being implemented. And, I'm, and I really appreciate that too, in terms of thinking about how we can make sure that these systems are both efficient, but that they also reflect other human values. Well, I think if you if you look at the um sort of the popular press uh, the media even even um, better places like wired their their reaction to new technologies often tends to be sort of um, quite dichotomous it's either wow cool um, sci-fi all our problems just got solved or it's oh my god there are orwellian privacy destroying monsters coming through the door <laughs> 
<laughs> and <laughs> most technologies need far more nuanced analysis that uh, they, they, they have a lot more uh, cost and benefits that you have to sort of dig through. And I, I find that very appealing as a, as a model to look at something new that I think is coming through and trying to figure those pieces out rather than just um, overreact one way or the other. Um, and the other thing is that anything that is disruptive or potentially disruptive, and maybe we'll get back to what that actually means if we ever do discuss Christensen on the pod again. Um, I think that anything disruptive is, is a wonderful test of systems. It's a stress test. It's a stress test of, of the underlying system, in our case, healthcare, but it's also a stress test of the legal system that's meant to be above it, regulating it, and so on. And you just find these wonderful little sort of gaps and questions when you throw something truly disruptive, um, like a new technology, at a relatively sort of staid, rather uh, creaky institution like healthcare delivery. Oh, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, that is a terrific theme of, of several of your recent articles, including the, the wonderfully uh, titled Navigating the Incoherence of Big Data Reform Proposals. Because I think that's the thing that you, you saw way ahead of a lot of the commentators was big data wasn't just one more item you had to tweak uh, the law in order to accommodate, that it truly undermines some of the most basic foundations of data protection and data policy law. Um, I think similarly with respect to Google Glass, and you know, I know you've, you've written on that as well, it's, you know, when, when you sort of bring in these really pervasively surveilling technologies, they are not, it's it's a difference in, in kind and not just degree. Um, it's a quality and not just a quantitative change in terms of what the data is doing and or, and what, what it could be deployed for and the challenges and opportunities uh, in analysis there. So, yeah, I do think that's a big problem of disruption. And, you know, it also, by the way, you know, you mentioned earlier the concierge care article I did in 2007, and it's amazing to see there's big New York Times article on concierge care exactly just two weeks ago. Um, so these topics are evergreen. In the same way, you know, you've been engaged with the sort of hearing aid issue for some time, and I seem to see a new news article about the battle over inexpensive hearing aids every other week. It's amazing. <laughs> Although my work did not contemplate the um, political spin on that. I viewed it as a sort of a regulatory stack issue, com um, a competition between um, uh, professional control of a market and um, more of a consumer electronics control of the market and, and, and contrasting those. I did not realize that the National Rifle Association would uh, create a political issue out of it um, because Elizabeth Warren was involved. <laughs> And, yes. that, and that and that changes in making hearing aids over the counter would in some way uh, reflect badly on um, how hunters could do their hunting. I mean, what's amazing to me about it is, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just have to say, I mean... I ran out of, of, of any way of uh, uh, explaining it or, or commenting <laughs> on it, uh, just a, a sheer sheer uh, wonderment at, at, at how our world is. <laughs> no, and I, and I really have to say, I mean, it's, it's what's astonishing about it and what it really, what it illuminates about just how tribalistic, ideological, whatever word you want to use, the, the politics seems to be becoming, is you would think that an entity that is entirely devoted to the uh, deregulation of a certain form of technology would be celebrating deregulation of another technology. You know, and it seems like the entire idea of uh, the NRA is to sort of get rid of a lot 
of gun control laws. And certainly you could, you could analogize that to this, but, you know, it just, it reminds me of the many ways in which DC politics has been uh, distorted by money or by other uh, sort of feuds. The, you know, it also reminds me of this classic situation back in the Bush administration when all the big egg producers were begging for eggs to be better regulated because they didn't be, want to be tarred with the salmonella brush from the small producers that were sometimes screwing things up. And um, they were just ignored because ideologically the idea was we have to just have as little intervention as, as necessary as possible here. So um, this is strange and it sort of, it doesn't uh, bode well for the future of politics, but. Well, yeah, let's, let's push that, that tribalism a little bit because I mean, we tribalism and, and the, the so-called culture wars. I mean, we've, we've, alas, got used to the, um, you know, the team shirts associated with abortion rights and other parts of the, uh, the culture wars. But this seems to be getting deeper and deeper. The tribalism associated, I think, with with climate change has been particularly interesting. There was some great pieces recently, uh, I think, in the Times on um, on the Koch brothers and and the influence on uh, the GOP, such that uh, basically uh, those who wish to run for Congress, Congress or stay in Congress have to sign a document uh, stating their anti climate change uh, position. And I wonder whether that is going to now find expression in healthcare. What we're seeing with the debates over the ACA and AHCA, and not just attempts at dismantling Obama's work, but also to a large extent dismantling the work of LBJ, whether this is the beginning or maybe even the middle of tribalism within healthcare, and that one party is simply going to be in the next decade or more simply against any kind of expansion uh, regulation of the healthcare industry. I think that's right. And I mean, and that actually leads me to some of the more recent work I've been doing on the political economy of healthcare as a sector. I really appreciate that lead in because that's one of the stranger things about what I think is happening now, which is that it seems as though there's one tribalistic aspect of it and there's another aspect of it that I think leads into uh, an ideological one, which is it seems that the, the idea of insurance is what's really at stake right now. And this is a variation on your point about um, going back to LBJ, it's not just Obamacare, it's LBJ care, which I think is really important framing here that's under attack. But secondly, that when you hear lots of folks at the very highest levels of the GOP saying things like, why should a man pay for a woman's paternity benefits? I'm never going to get pregnant, you know, or I'm I'm 55 and I'm not, I've had my children and I'm not going to get, we're not going to get pregnant again. Why should I pay? Or why should I pay for insurance I'm not going to use? You know, I really, I, for whatever, somehow, you know, I'm I'm never going to need X, Y, or Z. And on one level, this can be treated as a debate we need to have about the nature of insurance and is health insurance like car insurance, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's how it's often um, put forward in health law classes. But on the other hand, I always, my understanding is that most of the time you put that forward to teach people something about the ultimate nature of healthcare, which is not like those other forms of insurance, right? That you, you sort of, you're not sort of, it's not just sort of open for, oh, well, I guess that, yeah, we should all be paying for some sort of optimized insurance just for ourselves and try to cover everybody else as, as little as possible. And I don't know, you know, and I, and I think that that's the real worry that I would have. And I think the, that leads into the, the general hostility to the sector, sort of this idea. But on the other hand, you know, you can't say that that is just a tribalistic thing, because on the other hand, there are so many folks out there on all sides of the political spectrum um, or throughout it that have been 
calling the U.S. healthcare system a cesspool of waste, fraud, abuse, etc. And really, I, if I were a, a Republican strategist trying to defend the AHCA and all the Medicaid cuts, etc., I would just continually put up slides of Obama-era technocrats saying, you know, 30% of healthcare spending is a waste, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and just saying, well, we're trying to get rid of that. You know, there's no other way to get rid of it, so that's what we're doing. Now, of course, those of us in healthcare law and policy know that the argument often goes well beyond that, that it says, well, we should reallocate the funding. We need to reallocate the funding to social determinants of health or to home health aides who are undercompensated or other things like that. But unfortunately, that is lost when the headline message is it's all wasted fraud or we need to cap healthcare spending in the economy below a certain percentage of GDP, etc. And our guest, Guillaume McKee, talking about the uh, the macroeconomic impact of, of healthcare reform and just what the impact of the ACA was in pulling us out of the recession and what kind of uh, possible even recession we might be looking at as we move away from uh, broad funding of healthcare initiatives. I think that's a huge issue. Um, I heard a little bit at the conference, actually in that great plenary panel on Medicaid that opened the health law conference this year, on some studies that were done about Michigan and how Medicaid expansion in Michigan had this multiplier effect. There's also <laughs> some very good macroeconomics in this book called The Body Economic that says that you know defense spending has a multiplier effect of like 0.5 or 0.6, whereas healthcare spending has a multiplier effect of three or four. Um, um, so you have a lot of economists who are taking that other side and saying, watch out, you know, and frankly, just from a personal perspective, you know, living in Baltimore, living in a city that is really, I would say our economy is really dominated by meds and eds. It's hard to imagine how exactly the city bounces back from, say, losing hundreds or thousands of healthcare jobs. I don't know how, I think that's right. gonna, that would have a very tough impact here. It's, it's very interesting that, that, that I should have a similar kind of thought because Indianapolis is right in the middle of the central Indiana economic boom, which is a function of uh, immensely large uh, healthcare systems, Eli Lilly, uh, Roche Diagnostics, and then just the north of us, uh, I think we're the fourth largest state as far as medical device manufacturer. So it, 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 it's, it's very ingrained into the uh, the economy here. Um, and and I, have, I have similar kinds of thoughts. Yeah. And I think the larger issue too is, you know, in terms of the, what do we really want to devote ourselves to as a society? You know, and I think one of the areas of health law and policy where, you know, I feel like I want to change the rhetoric is it seems like a lot of folks get into health law and policy because they see a problem in hospitals and the way care is delivered and the way that doctors are, are work, et cetera. And they, they really focus on that. And that focus can be fantastic as reformist energy. But then when it boils down or it sort of in some ways can, can be expressed as a critique of the sector, an overly critical view of the sector, uh, dismissal, contempt for the sector even. I mean, I certainly see that in certain tweets from certain folks that are you know, health economists, etc. Um, then it really starts to just pave the way toward societal reallocation of resources toward places that maybe are not as constructive. Um, and by the way, I think this long-term issue too is something that I try to tackle in some of my bioethics work, although I've moved away from it, you know, but I, I really tried to think about, um, you know, what would optimal mental health care look like? What does in the long term yeah. Et cetera. And, and I think that it's very easy to lose track of that when you have a quarterly earnings perspective. Let's make a, a grand assumption here, Frank. And I think it's extremely unlikely, <laughs> but we're going to make the grand okay. assumption that we're going to do a, another 100 shows. Excellent. All right. In show 200, what are we going to be talking about? <laughs> That's a great question. 
you know, it's a- <laughs> All right, so in about two and a half years. So we're getting, we've, we've been through the midterm elections. America is great again. Um, <laughs> what are the health law and policy issues going to be that we're discussing? I will bet that one sleeper issue that will really emerge is going to be um, a potential exodus out of rural areas toward uh, suburban urban centers, thanks to a uh, collapse of health inf- infrastructure there. Because I think that the defunding of a lot of these hospitals um, and services is going to hit rural areas hardest. We've already heard that you know Alaska is one of the states that would be hit the absolute hardest by the AHCA. And one of the big issues is going to be, you know, how is the resultant political anger going to be channeled about in terms of this regional development? But secondly, it's going to just be the practicality of what do you do? We're probably going to see a lot more of these, you know, temporary tent cities that get established for, you know, emergency dental mm. care, like things that you would ordinarily see in less developed countries coming to, you know, parts of the US. And that is going to be, I think, a big issue. Another sleeper issue is probably going to be lo- local financing of healthcare. So what happens, say, maybe counties in Texas or Alabama or Mississippi decide that, you know, we really want to keep this institution going. We're going to have a county tax or something like that. That may be where some of the things that we'll be talking about as well, sort of this patchwork effort to deal with the consequences, the entirely, I think, foreseeable, predictable consequences of rapidly slashing uh, healthcare funding. Well, I think at the sort of the more positive level, I mean, you mentioned um, these examples earlier, but um, we might have something from Nevada or California by then that we could see with some tinkering becomes the new Massachusetts, right? The new model for going forward with a version of universality that is less segmented um, and less bureaucratic than Romney care going into Obamacare and so on. Yes, and I think that's also an area where the intersection of the digitalization of the economy is going to be important because from you know classic uh, economic theory might be that if you've got one state that heavily taxes its residents to provide health care to everybody and you've got another state that's just catch as catch can, lowest taxes possible, uh, like Kansas, um, you know, that the businesses are going to move to Kansas. But if it turns out that businesses really need people that have some level of bargaining power and that are going to demand some level of, you know, healthcare services, maybe it's going to be much better economically to be in one of the states that tries to expand care. I think I'm going to be um, probably only writing about AI for the next two Excellent. years. Excellent. The next two or three or four years. I've got a, I've got a feeling that that's going to be uh, a lot of what I'm interested in. Do you see your interest in technology continuing to move in the direction of, of AI and and uh, robotics and so on, or is 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 that a temporary? interest. Oh, no, no. I've got a manuscript uh, on uh, automation, tentatively titled Laws of Robotics, Revitalizing the Professions in an Era of Automation. Right. I may change the title to A Rule of Persons, Not Machines, which is a play of on a uh, rule of laws, not of men, uh, because I think there's a very interesting way in which lots of these technical systems can take over governance functions that are ultimately really only legitimately handled by human beings that are responsible and can explain their decisions in a narrative manner or in a humanly understandable manner. So yeah, that's that's a big concern of mine. And, and I think particularly thinking about how the sequence of automation works. Because I think if you automate too fast, 
it's going to end up, a lot of people are going to be alienated. And there I particularly think about like social care ro or care robots. You know, if, if, if nursing yep. homes say, hey, we don't have to pay people anymore. We're just going to have these robots go around and feed and bathe and clothe the elderly uh, in our care. Um, that may be a route to cheaper healthcare and the triple aim, but I'm really hoping that quality includes things beyond or considerations beyond um, the most uh, numerical quantitative measures of uh, uh, was this person given their pills? Was this person fed, etc.? And that question, actually, that reminds me of our interview with Deborah Stone, right? I mean, how does care yep. come back into the equation? And of course, it was the theme of your lecture here on uh, on robotics and the and the new Iron Triangle. So, yeah. And for our listeners, if you could talk about the Iron Triangle, I think that'd be fantastic because I'd, I'd love for them to get a preview of that that article. Well, I think we can we can do that okay, when it okay. comes out. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm writing it for your journal, and and if we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to the um the the slightly embarrassing YouTube version of my. Uh, of my no, speech. No, this is not slightly uh, All I can this say is, is I, <laughs> I, I do promise you that I, uh, the, the, uh, the written version will take care of some of the, uh, the questions that were asked. My only question really at the moment is whether I can get all this stuff out before we reach technological singularity. <laughs> and then there will be a, someone will do the podcast and your articles and, uh, and everything else, right? <laughs> That's right. So I wanted to end Frank with some questions. Excellent. Fingers on buzzers, please. And here we go when we first started about uh doing the pod uh we thought that it would be a good idea to have the length of being a 30 minute commute right whether it was by car or by train on the east coast we thought a 30 minute uh, commuting length um so my first question is uh, how many of our pods episodes have actually managed to hit 30 minutes wow i'm gonna guess two <laughs> Oh, very <laughs> impressive. Yes, we've only hit it twice. We have gone as long as 51 minutes. Who is that? Though that? No, that was a, ah, a back-to-school yes. special, so I think we, we, we get a, um, uh, a pass on that. In total, how many hours have we published? So how many hours of health law and policy has Twill put out into the world? I'm going to guess 60. Very good. Again, 58 Excellent. hours. <laughs> now, if you follow ABA law school accreditation, guidance that's almost two semesters worth of health law classes <laughs> so i think if we could keep this going for another year or so we could actually apply for accreditation <laughs> you know tyler cowan is doing that there's some other folks that are sort of trying to i think it's the university of cowan and tobarak or something but i will say that by there ideologically i may well have to uh, defend the guild so uh, <laughs> but more seriously um we do know that quite a few health law professors and policy folks are sign or recommend the pod and we've heard from tons of students who are listeners so uh, uh, we hope we've informed you uh, more than we've uh, confused you all right so the title of the pod is the week in health law we did do the math about a year and a half ago um i think i redid it we're still a little bit off our promise the week in health law turns out to be closer to one every 8.5 days <laughs> yes which isn't too bad given given even even podcasters need a break every now and again 
Um, how many different guests have we had? That is a tough question. I'm going to guess, gosh, because we have had some fantastic repeats. So I would say 63? 85 That's different guests. If I do say so myself. <laughs> so yes, that's very good. That's right. 28 of them have been outside the ranks of health law professor, which I think is also something that we we grew the pod into after the first six months or so. We we tried to make it much more sort of cross-disciplinary. And I will note too, and I think that's fantastic, and I, I also think that we should note that there was sort of a, at least uh, I wanted to consciously pursue voices beyond economics yes. when we came to social science. And I think the, the historians we've brought in, sociology, anthropology, philosophy, all of that I think is a really much needed expertise in a health policy debate that is so dominated by the health economists. And, you know, the more I, I and it's not to take down the health economists, it's just to say that this is one form of expertise among many. And I'm really happy that we were part of bringing these other forms right. of expertise to the table. We also need to celebrate those who have been truly supportive. We've had many repeat guests. When I put together a spreadsheet of uh, our repeat guests, uh, uh, very, very special thanks have to go to uh, Nicole Huberfeld, Nick Bagley, Aaron Fusay-Brown, Glenn Cohen, and Elizabeth Weeks-Leonard. Um, they have been particularly generous with their time over the last uh, a couple of years. Absolutely. And a big thanks also to Wendy Mariner for that very quick uh, quick turnaround in terms of the uh, uh, wellness programs. I remember that you had a very quick uh, commentary out on that. Oh, and yes, and, and both Wendy and Nicole on Bowell. Yes, yes. Uh, that, that was, was great. Good. We did, we did, did those uh, that uh, that day. And so, Frank, I think um, you need to say the magic words. And that was The Week in Healthful. A big thank you to us. <laughs> yes, and to all of you listeners, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. We post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And I'm at Frank Pasquale and at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us. Have a legally interesting but healthy week. And I wonder if this is the last episode ever. <laughs> oh, no. A cliffhanger. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>